Welcome to the Twin Cities Apologetics Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lin, and I have a very special guest here, Jane Warner Wallace. Good to be here. Good yeah. to be here. Yeah. We, yeah. Haven't, we haven't had a chance to really sit down and talk since we were together at CIA, so this is this is good. Yeah, it's would be really nice to have Yeah, uh, just like, to catch up. Yeah, right? for sure. Yep. Yeah, and have a conversation about something that's very important in this area of apologetics and making mm-hmm. a defense for our yeah. faith. Yeah. And that's that uh, that the topic of how do we look at evidence? As Christians, or maybe even anyone, coming into the yeah. uh, consideration of Christianity, and is it true, and how can we know that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is not unusual. We get everyone kind of comes to this table with some interest in Christianity, either for or against, and they have some skills that they can actually lean in with, right? So mm-hmm. my my I think my contribution is almost always going to be in this narrow area of well, what qualifies? How do we assess evidence? and make a proper inference, right? So we're beyond a possible, a reasonable doubt. We're never gonna get beyond a possible doubt, but right. we wanna get beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and if you think about it, um, that's a skill set that all of us need to have. And when we fill up a jury with just folks out of the community, we ask them to learn the skill set the detectives employed to collect this evidence and evaluate it. And, right. and so I think most of us have either watched stuff on TV or have been involved in jury trials as a juror mm-hmm. that has taught them something about well, how do I decide what is true on the basis of evidence and what would what would count, what would qualify as evidence? And so that's really, I mean, get asked this question a lot, Jeremy, like, okay, well, mm-hmm. so you're not, a, you're, you're looking at the evidence from cosmology or you're looking at evidence from um, manuscript evidence from the New, from the New Testament. Uh, well, do you have a PhD in cosmology? Well, no, I don't. I'm not an astrophysicist and I don't have a degree in biblical languages. I mean, my degree is in theological studies, but I don't have a, you know, expertise in biblical manuscripts. I, I can't tell you. But this is true for all jurors too. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed working in criminal trials is that we call in PhDs to tell us something about data mm-hmm. and also to give us an expert opinion. But both sides call in PhDs and they don't agree with each other. Mm-hmm. And there is just as many PhDs who would say the biblical evidence is sound and we should trust it that it's reliable as there are PhDs who say it's not sound and we shouldn't trust that it's reliable. So what I learned is when working with juries is we trust the PhDs to give us the data. Mm-hmm. But I reserve the opinion. That's what we ask the jurors to do is they give us. Now we will ask for an expert opinion, but we don't put experts on juries. We just put regular citizens on juries. So if, you, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I don't have that expertise, well, neither do I. Mm-hmm. What we do is we learn how evidence works. We learn how to make proper inferences. And then we can enter any discipline without a PhD and actually learn something and make a decision. Right, that's the good point. And I think some people, um, maybe who don't take a Christian view often, uh, kind of point to those PhDs, point to the right. experts and say, right hey, we need to almost fully rely on them That's for right. not only our, for the data, but for our view, what our view should right. be, your what our, opi- inference, yeah, our no, opinion absolutely. should be. Yeah. And so I think what the, the, the risk is that if that's the case, all I can do is tell you, well, I've got a PhD who disagrees with you. Mm-hmm. Not my PhD, but I know somebody who's got a PhD or there's some experts I can point to. Well, everyone can do that. In the end, we have to be able to say, okay, well, what's the data? So for, for example, I, I typically will look at the exact same biological, um, the exact same physical data that my atheist friends who are interested in physics right. they're using the same data points that I'm using well what do we infer from from information in DNA what do we infer from the appearance of fine-tuning in the universe that's mm-hmm. the real question right. and the experts can agree on what the data says about the fine-tuning 
but we might disagree on what the proper inference from the data is. Yeah. And so, I, but at the same time, I'm not, I, I want to hear what everyone says, what all the different sides say, but in the end, I reserve the right, like our jurors do, mm-hmm. to, to, to make a decision based not on the necessarily the expert opinion, because what happens is, is you, you present your expert, right? Yeah. And he says, I found these two pieces of uh, fabric at the crime scene, and it's got this serological evidence on it. And uh, in my opinion, this would be, mean that, that your defendant is involved in this case because he, he deposited those. And then the other expert from the other side will get up and say, well, I, I get it. I, I agree. There are some two pieces of fabric there, and they have some serological evidence. But, but this could have been deposited there some other way, and they'll, make, they'll try to argue for a different inference. Now, both opinions are offered to the jury, and the jury gets to decide which of these two opinions seems most supportive by the evidence right and they can actually decide okay but in every case does this you're deciding with some phds and against others mm-hmm. when you render your verdict and i think this is true for us as observers who don't possess a phd is that we get to listen to both sides and then it's okay for you to say well yeah but that it's reasonable and a lot of what we try to do in our work is to say well look this is how evidence is used and everything counts as evidence people ask me all the time what kinds of things count as evidence mm-hmm. everything everything has the potential mm-hmm. And, but there are broad categories. You know, there's direct evidence, which is eyewitness testimony. So if you've got somebody who saw the event, now obviously we're not going to be able to use direct evidence to make a, to make inferences about the beginning of the universe or even about ancient events because we don't have access to eyewitnesses. Now there may be a written eyewitness account. That's a different thing, but. We can't cross-examine that witness, right? Right. So a lot of times what we're doing is we're making inferences based on indirect evidence, the other form, and that is everything else. DNA is indirect evidence. Uh, fingerprints, indirect evidence. In our study, archaeology would be indirect evidence. Um, there's indirect evidence of, 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 of uh, the accounts themselves, how we examine the texts themselves. So I think there's, but everything counts, mm-hmm. and, 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 and everything is, is usable. Uh, and so that's one of the things I try to help people with is that, yeah, you know, don't think that the only way to prove this would be if you had a living, because if that was the case, if I needed a living eyewitness to determine something was true, especially about a historical event, I could have no confidence beyond my own, you know, you want to know your parents, but do you know your great grandparents? Mm-hmm. Is anybody still alive who knew your great grandparents? But you think you know something about your great grandparents, but you really can't yeah. if you're going to limit yourself to certain forms of evidence right. um, and we have to kind of toss away all of history. I don't think we're willing to do that. Yeah. And I'm curious, uh, you're, you're talking about expert witnesses mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Um, what would you say to someone who, who kind of refers to consensus saying like, mm-hmm. let's take the area of cosmology. Right. Someone says 80% of cosmologists uh, yes. think this thing about the universe. Yes. So therefore we should believe them because they're experts and right. most of the people in that field believe this thing. Well, so if um, I told you I had um, um, a, a view that was being uh, supportive of the defendant that's offered by 80% of the people the jury has heard. But if you knew that the 80% the jury had heard were all family members of the defendant, you would say, well, I don't care if they're 80% of the people we heard in this trial uh, support the defendant. They all happen to be his family. In other words, they might possess some bias that would drive them to say something. They might even infer this is true for themselves. They would say, because they know this guy, and they, there's no way he could have done this. But you might say, well, yeah, but if, you, if, if the entire group possesses a, a similar bias, then maybe the entire group is wrong. So I think what we're looking at is we're saying, okay, it, what is the, especially if we are moving away from a view that a, a admits anything immaterial, anything um, non-physical, uh, anything that is, uh, supernatural of those things are now out of bounds to our thinking 
because we were post-enlightenment, you know, uh, believers or post-enlightenment investigators. Well, then there may be that what why we agree on some of these issues is driven more by our common presuppositions than it is by the quality of the evidence. Mm -hmm. So I'm always trying to ask, well, okay, that's fine. If I've got like eight witnesses who came in and testified to this, I just want to make sure they're not driven by the same presupposition. Because if they are, then all of them as a group have to be kind of considered in a different category. Yeah. And I think what's happening in the sciences is on the natural sciences is that we have eliminated, we have a presuppositional bias against anything immaterial, anything non-physical, anything supernatural. So I think there are some things that even as an atheist, I would have said, I believe to be immaterial realities that were probably beyond my materialistic explanation, my experience of consciousness and free agency, my experience mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, there are some things I cannot experience through a purely physical construct, right? So I have to, at least, in, I think also the origin of the universe calls for something that is non-spatial, non-temporal, non-material, mm -hmm. that is the first cause of everything that is spatial, temporal, and material. So I think I, I was already stuck with some acceptance of a non-physical reality, it was at least how at least would have said it was extra natural. Yeah. If not supernatural. Yeah. So basically what I'm hearing is we, we don't, we, we can't just look at percentages saying, oh, 80%, 90%. Right. We have to look right. at other factors such as a bias amongst right. a certain group of people. Because if that was true, we could have historically gone back to a point in the not too distant past when the majority of scientists would have argued for just the opposite. Mm -hmm. Now we can argue, well, no, we've learned more. But we could also argue, no, we've slipped into a presupposition more than we ever did before. Mm -hmm. so I'm just not sure which of those two it is, right? So sure. if we're going to say consensus, we should always agree with consensus. Well, that, I don't think scientists would ever say that because all scientific discoveries are usually against the consensus held at the time. Mm -hmm. So we, we should at least be open to the idea that if something pops up that ruins the consensus theory, that we're open to it. Science has historically been open to those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we I, I still hold that position that, yeah, I, I will, I understand that there are gonna be consensus thoughts uh, on, on certain uh, issues, but I also am open to the idea that someone's gonna come along and destroy all that mm -hmm. uh, with a new theory. Yeah. Uh, and, and But here, I'm just saying, what if the theory points to mind? What if the theory, and we said this in this conference, this idea that we're only allowed in science to ask like five of the six classic questions. We can, we can ask what, where, when, how, uh, why, and how. So we can ask those questions, but we're not allowed to ask the sixth question, which is the who question. Mm -hmm. So you're only allowed to ask five in the natural sciences. When in any investigation, why, just allow me to ask the sixth. Mm -hmm. why, if all the evidence points to a who, Am I allowed to entertain a who? And if I'm not allowed to entertain a who, why am I not allowed to do that? Right. Like, so what, what is it? I mean, can you imagine if I said, I'm going to work your case, but I'm, and I, it's a mystery, this person vanished. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea if it was uh, somebody caused that person to vanish or what? This person's just missing. Am I allowed to ask every kind of question to solve this mystery? Mm -hmm. I think most people would say yes, but in the sciences, we're only allowed to ask five-sixths of the available questions. Yeah. And that seems to me to be the presuppositional bias we need to work against. I'm not going to jump to a who. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say, oh, God did it every time I can't answer it. Mm -hmm. But I, at least if I've got good evidence that points to it, I think information, for example, in the DNA points to intelligence. I don't know how you can get around asking a who question there. Um, but I'm not going to jump to that right away. I, I, I get it. A lot of things can be answered with the other five questions. But there are some things you cannot answer without the who question. 
let me ask it. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I, I would say certain questions are downplayed within certain people in who focus on science, such as I, I believe Richard Dawkins in one of his debates said at one point, uh, the why questions are just silly questions. Uh, right. is, the science is focused on the what, explaining what yes. is what is out yes. there in nature. Uh, to me, though, the why questions are some of the most important questions, along yeah, with the no, who no, questions that we can ask no in our lives. It. So we can ask why questions only to a certain degree in the sciences, it seems. We can ask, well, why does this domino fall a certain way? Well, what's striking it that would cause it? We can ask that kind of why. But, 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 but like, you know, we can ask, well, what causes your t body temperature to remain at the level it remains? We can get lots of processes that can explain this. But in the end, why is it this way? That's a question that is a metaphysical question that is uh, transcends science, it seems to me. We're eventually going to find processes in your biochemistry that will explain your body temperature. But when you ask, why does this happen this way? That, that's why I think Dawkins was said it's a silly question. But, but all of metaphysics, all this idea about the big grand questions, the overarching questions that explain our existence, I think are questions that probably are the most important, the most interesting questions to us as humans. Mm -hmm. Is, is, is purpose questions. Why am I here? That's a question you're gonna, it, science can't answer for you. Right. So it seems like a bunch of the questions that we think are the most powerful and give meaning to life are questions that aren't even asked by the scientific endeavor. Mm -hmm. So that kind of points us to the idea, let's start looking at other areas. Yes, keep science there, don't avoid it. Well, yeah, it's very I, important, I'm, I'm somebody in cases who's always gonna refer to scientific, I'm gonna collect data. Mm -hmm. So the facts and the evidences that I offer in front of a jury are always gonna be using some form of scientific collection or investigation or processing or testing. Um, but in the end, how we infer from those data is an entirely different. I, I don't want people to have a preconceived notion, just be open. And we always ask that question of jury selection, right? The question is not, well, do you hold a bias? We know everyone's got opinions. And can you suspend your bias long enough to look at this case? Because mm -hmm. otherwise, you're never going to unpanel it. You're never going to unpanel a jury. Right. So I think we have to kind of move beyond. But again, you can see how the presupposition in the end can ruin everything. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, the very first chapter. What are the key investigative tools is the simplest tool of all, and that is simply don't be a know-it-all. Don't think you know who did this crime before you even start investigating. And don't think you know that the answer can only be in certain categories. You know, there cannot be any, you know, a who in science. That's a, that's, that's, that, that is suggesting that you know that the nature of the universe in a way that we really don't know with certainty. Mm -hmm. At least be open. And I think you can still do good science because in that case, if there is a who, the entire project is about figuring out how that who operates in the universe. How that who, you're learning something about the nature of the who every time you answer a what or a why or a how. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that for a lot of people drove them to want to do science in, in times past, mm -hmm. just to want to know more about the who. Right. Um, but now we are, you know, I think what, if you think about it, if we, as we shift toward autonomy, the only who's we seem to be interested in are us, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I don't really want there to be a who out there that I might have to bend my knee to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of what you know, drives crimes, and it's also a lot of what drives our investigation of our environment. Sure, yeah. Well, we're going to take a, a quick break uh, right now, and then once we come back, we'll talk about uh, basically how do we interpret evidence as Christians, looking at the, the case for Christianity. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the conversation yeah, so far, sure. we'll continue.
Did you know 75% of young people leave the church upon entering college? How can we keep our young people engaged with the church and with the Christian worldview? This is where Rethink 2019 comes in, an exciting student apologetics conference coming to Minneapolis this November. There, top apologetics speakers will train young people to address the challenges to faith they will face as they move into college and beyond. For more information about this conference put on by Stand to Reason, check out the events section of our website, TwinCitiesApologetics.com. That's TwinCitiesApologetics.com. Welcome back to the Twin Cities Apologetics Podcast. I'm here with Jay Warner Wallace once again, and we missed a little bit of introduction at the beginning. So if you don't know, Twin Cities Apologetics is a ministry based in Minnesota that equips Christians with resources to help them strengthen and defend their faith. So Jay, I wanted to talk a little bit about how do we take evidence and interpret it and use it to come to a conclusion as Christians looking at the case for Christianity. But first, I want to talk about your experience as a cold case detective, because you looked at a lot of pieces of evidence, whether it was live on the scene or maybe evidence that came from the past that you looked at later on. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, can you take us through an example of taking a piece of evidence and uh, examining it right. and coming to a conclusion. Well, let, let me that. just say this. I, I have reasonable expectations when I work a cold case that the technology in 1980 created an environment where I'm only going to expect certain things. So, for example, I'm probably not going to have as many photographs as I would like to have in a present case because mm-hmm. now we have digital cameras. They've got you know cards that can hold thousands of photos, and I can and they're going to change the lighting. I mean, you'll have the same image shot thousands of different ways. It doesn't take much space. And I can put that stuff on a drive, and it's and I, so I've got tons of photos. Mm-hmm. Back in those days, you had rolls of 24 or 12 pictures on each roll, 35 millimeter film. A guy would do like six rolls and feel like he was done. You know, I got enough already. He's only got 60 photos. Mm-hmm. So I've got a, a major homicide with 60 photos, and they're not even great quality because they're from back in 1980 with 35 millimeter film. Also, back in those days, guys did not type. We used to take typing lessons or typing school. A guy who comes out of college today and becomes a police officer or detective is so facile with uh, keyboards mm-hmm. that you know those guys would do a supplemental report. You'd be lucky if it was you know a thousand words. You'd be like outrageously lucky. Mm-hmm. Now you you know guys are banging out five thousand words before they even get started because it's so easy to do it right, uh, and they're doing right. it themselves. Yeah. Back in those days, sometimes these detectives would come back to the station and they would have a, 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 a steno or somebody who was hired to listen to what they were saying, mm-hmm. and if they make a mistake. Uh, just just add this. Rather than like now we're just going to backspace, 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 keep on typing. So the quality of the written reports and the photographs from a case in 1980, I expect it to be less than, the same thing is true for me with biblical documents, for example, Mm -hmm. right? It's driven by technology. So how do people write? How did people write these on manuscripts? Did they dictate them to subscribe? Who That doesn't allow you to back up and make a change. That doesn't allow you to say, oh, you know what? That, that should be over here. You might try to do something like that, but the technology is going to limit your ability. You can't just cut and paste. Mm-hmm. I see this in my ancient in my ancient criminal reports. When I say ancient, 19, you know, 30 years ago. Because what I'll see is that a guy will come in, for example, and he would work a case over three weeks. And he would have a piece of paper 
and a typewriter, and he would put the typewriter, a piece of paper on the typewriter, and he would add to his report. And then two days later, he'd interview somebody else, and he'd put it back in the typewriter, and he would just add, you know, <laughs> dink, 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 dink to his report. Uh-huh. And, and sometimes if you read those reports, if it, it took three weeks to write it, you think to yourself, it's got like six different authors. Because you can't even tell that the person who wrote this paragraph is the same person who wrote this paragraph because this day he was just getting back and he used a steno who happened to be, a secretary happened to be there. And he said, hey, can you real quick, I'll, I'll give it to you. And he, he communicates it to her and she would clean it up as she was typing it, mm-hmm. make it sound better. And, and the next day he didn't have time for that so he just put it in the typewriter and banged it out himself. So technology impacts the way we assess those reports. Mm-hmm. And I have to be careful I understand the environment in which those reports were written or I can make all kinds of assumptions. Mm-hmm. I think something similar happens in the manuscript evidence we have for the scripture, right? You have something that is written. We've got to ask ourselves, well, is this written in one setting? Is this written with a scribe, with a pair of scribes, with three scribes? Is it written by the person's own hand? I mean, you, you see this in Paul's letters, for example, where he uses scribes and will then stop and say, this is in my own hand. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, that means you're going to have some, you might even think that there's no way this guy could have written this letter and this letter, but what you really have are two different scribes involved. Mm-hmm. Or, so you just don't know. So you have to assess all of these things, right? It's the yeah. nature of the evidence to draw a conclusion. Yeah, it's really interesting because it sounds like let's say there's an examiner today, mm-hmm. goes to a crime scene, there's different pieces of evidence there, maybe some right. cell phone, something right, like that. Right. He can use the current, say, cultural climate or uh, situation to assess that evidence. Yes. But if you're looking at evidence from 30 years ago with, like you said, some yes. of that technology, then you need to take into consideration that technology, yes. the cultural how is it, how atmosphere is it at the time. Right, how is it collected? Yeah. So for example, we see uh, differences in the gospel accounts, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if one detective is interviewing all four sources, he will see these differences in real time. And he'll ask follow-up questions because in his own mind, he's going, well, yeah, but you only mentioned one angel and this guy mentions two. So you might say, well, how many angels were there? Oh, there were two. Oh, but you're only talking, why, a minute ago, you only said one. Well, that was the one who was talking to us. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I've got it clarified because the detective who is doing all of the sources knows the differences in advance and as he experiences them in real time, he can ask clarifying questions, right? right? Well, we don't have that with the gospel. So I would, if you don't have that, if I send a team out to canvas the neighborhood and, and talk to all the possible witnesses, I'm going to get a set of reports back with four or five different authors talking to four or five different witnesses, I guarantee you, I'm going to see far more variation in the accounts than I even do in the Gospels. Mm. The only way to get rid of that is to go revisit all of those witnesses with all the differences in your head and say, let me ask you a question. So how many angels were there? Mm-hmm. A follow-up question. Not going to give him the answer. You're just going to ask another follow-up question. Mm-hmm. That's, but this isn't happening in the Gospels. So there are things that when I first read through the Gospels, I said, wow, that's the, I can tell that there's not a secondary set of clarifying questions that's been asked by an investigator here. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of like when you canvass a neighborhood and you get all these reports back, you're going to go, wow, this is a mess. Yeah. Right? i got to figure this out now. Yeah. And when in a cold case, those people are no longer available to you. Yeah. A lot of those people have died or they've moved out of state or, you know, whatever the case may be, you're kind of doing the same thing in cold cases that you are when you're evaluating those four accounts in the New Testament. Yeah. There are some principles that apply both ways, right? I have to be at least be sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. So for me, I just started off looking at the Gospels um, and just trying to determine, number one, do I really think that they contain anything that could, could be considered an eyewitness account? 
Two of them may, right? I think they do, Matthew and John. But what's interesting about Luke and Mark is we have good reason to believe that they're talking to eyewitnesses to write their accounts as well. Yeah, well, and that we do puts have me that. in a different category. So now I'm actually assessing, and there's a template for this. You know, uh, were they written early enough to actually have been written by eyewitnesses? Do they have any kind of corroborative evidence? And when I say corroborative evidence, what I mean is touch point corroboration. It would be great if I had a video for every crime I ever investigated, but I don't. So if you say, hey, yeah, he reached up and he jumped on the table, well, I should be able to go back and find palm prints where you said he, and if I find those palm prints, I've now corroborated his statement, your statement to me about him. Mm -hmm. But if, this won't tell me anything about what he wore. And it won't tell me anything about what he said when he did it. All this is telling me is I found, I have to infer from touch point corroboration that your statement is reliable. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens in the New Testament, right? I have to, there's going to be touch point evidence. If you think you can check a box for every little data point in the Gospels, you're crazy. You're not going to be able to do that. And you wouldn't be able to do it in the cold case either. Mm -hmm. You're just going to have to have enough corroborative evidence that your jury says, yeah, I've got no reason to distrust it. So what I've noticed is that people who distrust the account are not relying as much on the nature of evaluating accounts as they are on the pure fact that they include some supernatural elements. Mm -hmm. And those in a naturalistic environment where we're already kind of post-enlightenment, it's like, wow, those, those can't be true. Right. Yeah. And if you assess them under eyewitness structure, you said, okay, there's a template for eyewitness reliability and they pass the test. People would still say that no, it can't be true, though, mm -hmm. because they include miracles. Right. So, so that's not though about whether they pass a test. Evidentially, that's about whether you hold a bias against the supernatural. Sure. Yeah, and I think a lot of the stuff that you're talking about of being a detective and looking at past evidence and and how we go about that is very valuable because I think people looking at the Gospels today, they can have this, you know, 21st century American type of view yes, on it, saying like, right. oh, these need to be basically identical or very close to, right, and right. otherwise I'm not gonna Never trust it. And in guys who work this for a living, they always, in my audiences, there's always investigators, you know, detectives from some agencies, mm -hmm. and they, they right away get that. Right that we just never get a case that's that clean. Yep. And this is why defense attorneys make inroads with juries because they're gonna attack the subtle differences mm -hmm. and try to argue that they can't be trusted because there are differences in the accounts. Yet, even though that happens, we've got aggressive, really well-served, you know, I've seen been worked with some defensive teams that have done a great job for their client. Mm -hmm. I think most of us are able to get past that when they realize that, yeah, this is, there are many things that cause us to see things slightly differently. Yeah. And it's that richness that we're looking for. The only thing I ever ask when I get called out to a homicide scene is I ask the dispatcher to have the officers on the scene separate the eyewitnesses. That's the only thing I ask. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say get CSI out there. No, just separate the eyewitnesses. I'll be there in a half an hour. Because mm -hmm. when I get there, I don't want them to have talking to each other. I don't want them to, to align their stories. I want their stories to remain different. Because it's those differences that are full of clues that'll help me solve the case. And if they just align their stories, so the first thing I ask is separate the eyewitnesses. That's really the only directive I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so there's one more question I wanna ask kind of more on the practical side. Yes. We did talk through some things that are definitely practical of how mm -hmm. do we look at the gospels and view them uh, in light of you know, being in our cultural context and that we need to consider the cultural context of that time right. and how, how those accounts were put together. But uh, for uh, practical sake, along with that, mm -hmm. for Christians looking at maybe 
an argument for God's existence that they hear that they haven't heard before, or looking at a historical piece of evidence, say regarding the Gospels or regarding Jesus. What would you say is is the main principle that Christians should take uh, regarding looking at that evidence? Like, what is kind of a first step they should do in, okay, in that well, process? Okay, well, if it's eyewitness stuff we're doing, and you just know the template, just mm-hmm. know what qualifies something as reliable from an eyewitness perspective. It's all about is it early? Were they really there to see what they said they saw? Can it be corroborated in some way? Doesn't it be completely corroborated? But are there, is there any, for example, if you're looking at the Book of Mormon, you won't find any level of corroboration for the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. No archeological corroboration, no textual corroboration. You have nothing to track. So I don't expect you to have every detail corroborated, but I would expect you to have some percentage corroborated. Mm-hmm. Right, this is true in every criminal trial. Third thing is, um, have they changed their story over time? So I'm looking for transmission of the documents, right? I'm also looking for transmission of the eyewitness account. Hey, you said this in 1980, but now you're not saying that anymore. Or you said this just five years ago when somebody interviewed you for the news, yeah. and now you're not saying that anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to use you in a trial because that issue of your changing story is gonna be the, you know, the, the, it's gonna kill your testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing is, do you possess a bias? And there's only three biases. That's the pursuit of money, uh, sexual lust, and the pursuit of power. Those three things cause people to lie. So once I've eliminated those four issues and settled those four issues on a witness, mm-hmm. I feel comfortable using that witness in trial. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we're trying to do with the Gospels. Can they pass the test in those four areas? Right. And so that's why I would say if you're looking at the manuscript evidence related to eyewitnesses is just know the template. Mm-hmm. That's helpful because it'll allow you, those four things are what determines something is reliable. Yeah, and to get a really good grasp on that template, I definitely recommend your work, Cold Case Christianity, where you go through a lot of those principles and what right. people can use to to look at the Gospels and see, is this a reliable source? Yeah, and it was not use? something that I created for that book. It's just, this is the process that I used mm-hmm. in order to determine, do I want to be part of this? Do, yeah. I want to, do I think this is worth paying attention to? In the end, what we want to be able to make the case for is that the Bible is reliable and you ought to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get caught up in all the political stuff and all the stuff that's downstream culturally. I get that. Those are important issues. But the real issue is starts at a foundation. Is, is the Bible reliable and should we take it seriously mm-hmm. so I just try to stay in that the little lane there of trying to help people with that one question because if we, if we agreed that the Bible was reliable and we ought not just take a verse out of context we ought to take it seriously and build our case yeah. on the basis of what the totality of Scripture teaches I think we'd be in the same place on almost every other issue mm-hmm. that matters right. um, and so that's why I think it's important for us to make the case for those other two things before we make the case for anything else right yeah, so I think that's uh, our time here for this podcast. Thanks for having but, me. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this important topic, as the, all, all of these topics are really yeah, about are. interpreting evidence sure. for the case of for Christianity. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time on the Twin Cities Apologetics Podcast. <laughs>